Good morning and Christian greetings to, to all of you. I will, would echo a bit what Darren was sharing as far as about reach. Um, it was a, a blessing to be there. And uh, it, it's just an interesting gathering. And for those of you that don't know what it is, um, Thursday and Friday event, there's 52, there were, this time there were 52 Anabaptic, conservative Anabaptist ministries represented there. And uh, on Thursday, there was about 1,500 people there with main sessions and breakouts more geared toward the ministry workers and board members and so forth. Then on Friday, uh, there's, uh, there were about 2,000 people there, including, I didn't hear a number, but uh, certainly hundreds of high school students, and it's geared more toward youth and uh, opportunities that are there, and uh, just a lot of good preaching and so forth. Um, if anything, come away feeling almost intimidated and, um, and so forth, and inadequate in so many ways, but it was a it was a real blessing, and I would encourage anyone that can make it, uh, put it on your calendar for two years from now on the third week of March, and uh, just kind of plan on it. Uh, it's very worthwhile. <clears throat> My favorite time of the year is spring. Um, you see the daffodils and the tulips brightening the yards. Um, the flowering trees follow, you know, in the woods and, and adding color in, uh, you know, just before they burst with the green leaves. I personally like the dogwood tree about the best. Uh, there's something about the dogwood that I just absolutely love. Uh, they're simple and yet beautiful flowers. Maybe one reason is dogwoods were in abundance in the wild, in the Ozarks, where I grew up. And so every spring, it would just be beautiful um, colors and so forth, pink and white flowers. And certainly, uh, I enjoy having native dogwoods in our woods back here where we live now. There... The famous Japanese cherry trees around the tidal basin um, are another example of beautiful flowering trees, and they're expected to be in their peak bloom within the next two weeks or so. Last year, according to someone's estimate, more than 600,000 people came to D.C. to see these cherry blossoms. And um, just a little bit of background, in 1912, more than 3,000 of these trees were a gift from the Japanese government to the U.S. government. Just curious, how many of you have had an opportunity of walking around the tidal basin when the, there's blossoms on the cherry trees? Most of you here, which I expected. Now, how many of you have walked around the tidal basin, say, around June, and eaten some of the cherries from the trees? There just ain't no cherries. Uh, they're called cherry trees, but they don't produce cherries. They're ornamental cherry trees. And that's the title that I want to give our mess uh, the message this morning. Are we fruitful Christians or ornamental Christians? Are we like these cherry trees downtown that produce beautiful blossoms that people admire, 
but never produce any fruit? Or do we produce big, juicy, sweet, delicious cherries that provide nourishment for those around us? Being a true disciple of Jesus Christ will result in fruitfulness. If we're a true disciple, there will be fruitfulness. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to John 15 this morning. This instruction is, uh, speaks very much right to this issue, and it, it tells us what it means to be fruitful. There's four main components to this. I'm not sure if you call it a parable or if you call it an analogy, um, but you have the vine, the vine dresser, the branch, and then the fruit. And we want to look at these four components uh, a bit this morning. But I'd like for you to pay attention as we read this and, and think about what Jesus is instructing his disciples here. Um, reading the first 17 verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless it abides in me, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be full, may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, that, every, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." This teaching comes from Jesus to his disciples the night before his death and crucifixion. It's only hours before he was arrested and uh, was going to be tortured and cruelly, cruelly crucified. So he's speaking to his disciples, the follow, his followers for the last three years and giving them some final 
insights and instructions here. In a short time, after the, giving these instructions, the disciples are going to be left by themselves to work and to carry out the kingdom of God that Jesus has initiated. In this analogy, Jesus uses the common site of a vineyard in that time, a field of rows of carefully tended grapevines sagging under the weight of luscious clusters of juicy grapes. As I was studying this, I was like, you know, you read this, it's familiar. A lot of us have probably even memorized this passage. But sometimes the pronouns and the way that you're saying it, you kind of almost lose track of what is he saying or what does he mean and so forth. And I'm going to read at least part of this, and uh, I think I have time to read it all, but basically substituting the noun for the pronoun. So when Jesus says I or me, put in Jesus. When he says you, put in disciples. When he says uh, he, talking about God the Father. And, and I think when we read it this way, it's certainly more clumsy to read it, but it adds something uh, to it that I think gives us a little better dimension. I would encourage you then, do you get home, take this and put your name in there instead of you. Instead of disciples, personalize it and put your name in it and see how that reads. The grammar isn't all right, so you might have to add some words or change some things, but you get the gist it, and personalize it in that way. I'll read this again now. Substituting the pronouns with nouns. Jesus is the true vine, and God the Father is the vine dresser. Every disciple in Jesus that does not bear fruit, the Father takes away. And every disciple that does bear fruit, the Father prunes, that the disciple may bear more fruit. Already disciples are clean because of the word that Jesus has spoken to disciples. Abide in Jesus, and Jesus in disciples. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can disciples unless the disciples abide in Jesus. Jesus is the vine. Disciples are the branches. Disciples who abide in Jesus and Jesus in disciples, those are the disciples that bear much fruit. For apart from Jesus, disciples can do nothing. If a disciple does not abide... In Jesus, the disciple is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If disciples abide in Jesus, and Jesus' words abide in disciples, ask whatever disciples wish, and it will be done for disciples. By this, Jesus' Father is glorified, that disciples bear much fruit, and so prove to be Jesus' disciples. As the Father has loved Jesus, he so has Jesus loved disciples. Abide in Jesus' love. If disciples keep my commandments, disciples will abide in Jesus' love, just as Jesus has kept Jesus' Father's commandments and abide in the Father's love. These things Jesus has spoken to disciples, that Jesus' joy may be in disciples, and that the disciples' joy may be full. This is Jesus' commandment that the 
Disciples love one another as Jesus has loved disciples. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Disciples are Jesus' friends if disciples do what Jesus commands disciples. No longer does Jesus call disciples servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but Jesus has called disciples friends. For all that Jesus has heard from Jesus' Father, Jesus has made known to disciples. Disciples did not choose Jesus, but Jesus chose disciples and appointed disciples, and, and disciples should go and bear fruit, that the disciples' fruit should abide, so that whatever disciples ask the Father in Jesus' name, the Father may give it to disciples. These things Jesus commands disciples so that disciples will love one another. Like I say, it sounds, it's a little bit clumsy to read it that way and thank God for pronouns, but at the same time, it clarifies what he is saying as well and that I found extremely helpful. So we're going to look at the vine first. It says, I am the true vine. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus declares who he is with a statement of I am. He says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then I am the true vine. And this is the final I am statement that, Jesus, that is recorded here in this Gospel. Jesus makes it clear in what he's saying is that Jesus is the true vine. Um, there is no vine other than Jesus Christ. Another w analogy that maybe would be more common for us, since we're not as familiar with great vines, is the trunk of the tree. Jesus is the trunk of the tree. It, through Jesus, the lifeblood of the plant flows. The, uh, yeah, it flows through the vine. If we aren't connected to the true vine, we are connected to some deceptive imitation or counterfeit vine. And there's actually, this is referred to as the vine of the earth in Revelation. Unbelievers depend on the world and its system for their life, for their existence, for the satisfaction and their pleasures, while believers get their life from Jesus Christ. And um, if you care to, Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20, I'd like to read that um, as well, where it refers to the vine of the earth. And my apologies on the um, technology. For some reason, the projector is not turning on this morning, and I had this all prepared for that, but we'll move forward without that. Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, 
the angel who had the authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So here you see the contrast. You, we're either attached, we're either attached to the true vine or the vine of the earth. And the vine of the earth will be judged uh, in the final day. Secondly, we have the vine dresser. So the vine is Jesus. The vine dresser is God the Father. As a disciple of Jesus, I don't live life on my own strength or on my own terms. God the Father tends to the plants, as you will, or tends to our lives. Jesus supplies, and I simply draw my strength by obediently following what he has provided. God the Father is in charge of caring for the vine and the branches to maximize fruit production. God the Father is the one that's responsible for pruning the branches to enable them to produce more fruit. Just curious, how many of us or how often do we find ourselves praying that we be more fruitful while at the same time resisting the pruning that God is trying to do in our lives? Because pruning is a critical aspect of fruitfulness. There's two primary purposes for pruning. The first is to cut away the dead wood, just to get rid of the stuff that's dead. Secondly, the vine dresser cuts away living growth to make sure that the life from the vine can be the most productive. This involves cutting off potential fruit. Okay, we're talking about fruitfulness, but this actually, the pruning actually involves cutting off potential fruit so that the rest of the crop will be better quality. I'm told that on average, frequently, or I should say, I don't know if it's on average, a grapevine will produce two to three hundred buds that would produce grapes uh, each year. However, the best grapes are produced when that vine is pruned to about 12 buds the first year and then adding about a bud a year after that. That means the vine dresser is removing 90% or more of the potential fruit in order to maximize and, and get that good, sweet fruit, the best fruit. If, if left unattended, the fruit would be small and sour and would never really ripen. And so the the process of pruning is a very important process in the vineyard, and God is the vine dresser in the vineyard of our lives 
if you will. He expects both quantity and quality fruit. So ask yourselves, do you really want to be pruned or are you sure you don't want to be pruned? I personally believe that the, one of the greatest judgments God could put on us, on a disciple, is to neglect pruning. Because to neglect pruning would be to, uh, basically an indication he doesn't really love us. But because God does love us, he does prune us. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But at the same time, it's at the time that God is pruning us that he's also closest to us. He may be cutting something bad from our life that could cause future trouble, like uh, the dead wood can hold insects and so forth. But more likely, he's cutting away something good to make so that there can be something better or even best. And he could even be removing something better because he wants to produce the best. It's not enjoyable, but it is rewarding. And I believe that God, uh, God certainly does it to love us. Um, just a couple of things. How does God prune us? And I'm not going to turn to these scriptures. They're familiar with us. First of all, God prunes us through conviction by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And I um, appreciated John reading 2 Timothy this morning. I was going to reference 2 Timothy 3 where it talks about the Word of God is sharper, or is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, the Word is, is a form of, is God uses that for pruning. Secondly, God prunes us through chastisement or discipline. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, he talks about enduring discipline and that as a father loves sons, that's the way that God cares for us and he disciplines us for our good. And pruning is a form of discipline, if you will. It's not pleasant to have something, have God remove something good that's perfectly good from us at the same time as that spiritual growth, as the crop matures, I believe that we can probably see what God was doing and will understand, and God certainly is doing the right thing because he doesn't make mistakes on that. The other, another aspect is that God prunes us through fellow disciples our brothers and sisters. And uh, it's quite natural to resist admonition from somebody, from a brother or a sister in the church. I believe that generally uh, when, when someone has the courage to confront someone else, it is out of a deep love and concern of well-being for that person. Um, I'm not saying it always is, but, but I believe that it generally is. And I suspect it is equally difficult for you to think about approaching someone else. And, um, and so that, that is something that you should take that seriously. Then there's the branches, which are you and I. Born-again disciples are the branches in this analogy. The only way branches produce fruit is by being 
attached to the vine and allowing the life of the vine to flow through the branch to produce the fruit. As it states there in John 15, I forget what verse it is right now, but separated from the vine, I'm sorry, uh, the, the branch is useless and completely unproductive. If the branch isn't attached to the vine, it doesn't have any life. It's dead. Uh, really, it's attached to the vine of the earth at that point, but it's worthless. So if a so-called Christian attempts to live his life without really being connected to Jesus Christ, without drawing his life from Jesus, they will die spiritually. It's not a matter of if. Uh, they will. Uh, they will. And the sooner we realize that our own incredible weakness and limitations, the sooner we can fully depend on Jesus Christ because, and recognize that he's our only source of strength. We can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ, who's the vine, the source of our life. The word abide appears at least ten times in this John 15 passage. And the, word, the Greek word means to dwell, to remain, to endure, to stay. And so it, it, again, indicates a direct connection to and an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Abiding requires confession of all known sin to allow for there to be that openness for the life to flow between the vine and the branch. Abiding is the intentional act of continual and deliberate surrender. As the more I thought about this, the idea of abiding, surrender is the word that kept coming back to me because if you are attached to a vine and that life is flowing, you have no say, if you will. You are attached. You are committed to that, and that is surrender. It is what God wants to do through you. It's not what I want to do. So it is the intentional act of continual and deliberate surrender. Then specifically allowing Jesus to work through our lives to produce those things that will honor the Father. Branches or disciples must respond to the prompting and attention of the vine dresser in order for the branch to bear maximum fruit. I'm going to sometimes use the word branches and vine, and other times I'm going to use disciples and Jesus just to kind of mix it up here. Um, disciples must abide in Jesus to be fruitful. Abiding branches must rely exclusively on the vine's lifeblood. Abiding disciples must rely exclusively on the vine, on Jesus' lifeblood. Abiding branches produce exclusively for the vine dresser's honor. We're produced. 
the branches produce fruit for the glory or for the honor of the vine dresser, not for themselves. And then they flourish, the disciples flourish in the joy of that connection to Jesus. So as branches, we have both the privilege of abiding and the responsibility of bearing fruit. I mean, it's not that we do the bear, fruit bearing, but that is to be the result of abiding. So what is the fruit? Is the fruit good results? Is it good deeds? Is it actions? You know, any machine can produce good results. Even a criminal can do good deeds. Anyone can act appropriately depending who is watching. Fruit is, I'm not sure if this is quite accurate scientifically, but the way that I describe this is that fruit is a living organism getting its life from, a different sor from another source. Basically, it takes time to produce fruit. It takes cultivation, and it doesn't appear instantly, but it is because of the life in the vine that that fruit is produced. And one of the distinguishing features of good spiritual fruit is that there is within it seeds for more fruit. So fruit can be counterfeited, but a branch cannot bear genuine fruit, authentic fruit of its own, on its own. It has to be through Jesus Christ. Man-made results are dead and cannot reproduce themselves. It's only the Spirit-produced fruit that's going to go on producing in others' lives. And it's being, the fruit is produced for the enjoyment of others, not for the enjoyment or benefit of the branch that produced it. Spiritual fruit is not limited to our actions and deeds. It is attitudes, it is motives, and it's character qualities within us. It's the transformed heart and the renewed mind. It's the evidence of the life of Jesus flowing through us is what the fruit is. Um, actions and deeds are seen, but that's only, you might say that that's only the flavor of the fruit. That's not really the fruit. It's an aspect of it, but it's not really the fruit. It's, it's the flavor that comes with it. I just listed several uh, different types of fruit that we might um, find. The fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. There's nine characteristics listed there. Romans 1.13 talks about the fruit of winning souls to the kingdom. Uh, Romans 6.22 Two, we see the fruit of growing, in, of growing spiritually, growing in holiness and obedience, sanctification. 2 Corinthians 8, there's the fruit of generosity, of Christian giving, where it talks about that these believers, it says they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of this part in the relief of the saints. 
That's, that's a fruit. The fruit of every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10, um, talks about bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then Hebrews 13.15 talks about continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, the fruit of our praise. So coming back to the idea of being fruitful or ornamental, cherries or cherry blossoms, what kinds of fruit are evident in each one of our lives? Are we producing spiritual fruit? Is this fruit evident to and blessing those around us? How do we respond to the pruning that God the Father wants to do in our lives? Blossoms are one step, one of the stages of fruit development. And so there will, there will be, so to speak, blossoms in our lives. But are we so concerned about what others think of us that we're content only with showing the blossoms but not actually going on and developing the fruit? Those kinds of trees look fruitful, but they never actually produce anything. This type of thing would be making decisions based on what others or your peers will think rather than simply what, than relying on what God wants you to do for your life. Comparing ourselves with others instead of to Christ. Um, an unwillingness to, to share what Christ has done for our, us with those around us. The cherry trees around the tidal basin are incredible incredibly beautiful for several days out of the year, but they are completely unfruitful because they're, I mean, they're ornamental. They're not fruitful trees. The unproductive or the unfruitful branch does not go unnoticed by God the Father. We may be able to impress everyone around us, but we will never impress God. He doesn't tolerate unfruitfulness. I don't know if this is totally true, but I believe the main difference between the blossom and the fruit is the motivation of our hearts. It's what's really going on in our hearts. Why do we do the things that we do? Is it to impress others? Is it to look good? Is it out of our incredible love for God? Is it because the life of Jesus is flowing through us? My suggestion would be that a good way to test our heart and our motivation is to consider what we would do in any given situation when we believe that no one else is watching and no one will ever find out. It's at those times that we know who we really are and what we would really do. And um, granted, we know that God knows, but you know, how is it that we prioritize Spending time in the Word. What about prayer? What about giving time to someone else in need? Or how I spend my money or give my money, share my money? What do I do in my spare time? Those are the things that expose or reveal what's really in our hearts. God will give us a heart and a desire to abide if we sincerely ask him. 
In conclusion, I just want to reiterate that God is not impressed by how many beautiful and eye-catching blossoms your life produces. But he does care deeply about the quality and the quantity of the fruit that you actually produce. And he knows that each one of us is capable of producing more fruit than we are right now. And he wants to do that in our lives. So my challenge to you is, are you willing to invite the master vine dresser to carefully and expect my branch to determine whether it's really being fruitful or if it's simply producing blossoms. And then in addition, are you willing to ask the vine dresser to make us produce more good fruit? And it's our choice. We, we choose whether or not we invite that. God is waiting, but we have to invite him to do that. And I believe if we sincerely pray that prayer, if we sincerely ask God whether that he does that, he will answer those prayers because that's what he wants to do in each of our lives. This is not, uh, in a lot of ways, it seems like Colossians 1, 9 to 14, which has become a favorite passage of mine, reflects what Jesus is describing to the disciples in John 15 asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.